Talking History on News Talk. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, the doomed Franklin expedition and the Irish captain who attempted to save the mission. Inconsistencies and contradictions in the Bible, Aztec hieroglyphics and how to decipher them, a history of Latin America told through cricket, and to end the show, we'll hear about the pirates who came to Ireland and the brutality and terror they brought with them. Last week, we explored the history of Christianity in Britain and Ireland through 21 buildings, found out about the Battle of the Tsarina to regain her throne, and heard about violence in Dublin in the final months of the War of Independence. And if you want to listen back to that or any of our older shows, just go to our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show, Icebound in the Arctic, with the mystery of Captain Francis Crozier and the Franklin Expedition. Captain Francis Crozier was a major figure in 19th century Arctic and Antarctic exploration who led the doomed Franklin Expedition's battle to survive against the odds. It's a compelling story which refuses to be laid to rest and the recent discovery of his lost ships above the Arctic Circle gives it a new urgency. And I'm delighted to be joined on the show by Michael Smith who has just brought out a new edition of his brilliant book Icebound in the Arctic, The Mystery of Captain Francis Crozier and the Franklin Expedition published in paperback by the O'Brien Press. Michael, you're very welcome back to the show. Lovely to hear from you again. And Michael, can you tell us about Captain Francis Crozier, born in Banbridge in County Down. Tell us about how he became a polar explorer and the connection with Franklin and the expedition. Well, he's born in uh, 1796 in Banbridge and at the age of 12, he's sent off quite a well-to-do family uh, in the north, um, but he's sent off to the Navy at the age of 12, 13 which is very, very unusual, of course, uh, for somebody from that sort of background. Um, And this is in the middle of the Napoleonic Wars, so a really dangerous time to be doing this. After the war, however, this is really the beginning of the century of British dominance of the world. Um, The British had defeated the French. There were no other real uh, rivals on the horizon, but they had this massive navy and army, and they didn't know what to do with them. And so they chose exploration. And one of the things they wanted to do was to find the Northwest Passage across the top of Canada so that they could get to the Far East quicker, basically. Um, well, this quest had been going for 300 years, and they hadn't got anywhere near it, really. And Crozier volunteered in 1821 because he was a navy man and he had nothing to do, like most of the naval officers they were pretty much unemployed and he seems to have stood out Um, he went along with a man called uh, Edward Parry who was one of the great uh, British uh, naval captains and explorers of the age and he eventually ended up doing six expeditions so this young lad from from Bambridge uh, became one of the most prolific of Arctic and Antarctic explorers and the unusual thing about him is that he went to both the Arctic and the Antarctic, which is very unusual. And the book is the story of this great explorer, but it also involves a, a lost love affair. Can you tell us about the, the connection between Francis and the daughter of Sir John Franklin? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an unusual one, Patrick, because you very rarely have these things with, it, with exploration. Uh, in this case, uh, Franklin, uh, um, Franklin had a niece, called Sophie Craycroft, and Francis Crozier was absolutely smitten with her. And on several occasions, he asked her to marry him. 
But to put it bluntly, she liked the man, but not the sailor. And so she rejected all these um, uh, requests for marriage. And um, he got very uh, unhappy about this, became melancholic. And I think in in 1840s times, he had something of a, a, a breakdown, an emotional breakdown. He'd been on a grueling four-year expedition to the Antarctic and came back and nobody really cared too much, although he had excelled. And then in 1845, Britain was putting together yet another attempt on the Northwest Passage. And um, Crozier kind of went on this as deputy to Sir John Franklin. And I've always felt that one of the reasons at the back of his mind was to impress Sophie Craycroft. And I think he, he almost envisaged coming back with the prize of the Northwest Passage and that she would finally succumb and maybe he'd retire. Um, that didn't happen. And um, strangely enough, Sophie Craycroft never married. Yeah, so there's a, a tragedy there as well. So talk to us then about the doomed Franklin expedition, the death of Franklin, and I suppose how Crozier took over and uh, what he faced. Yeah. And... Well, we always call it the Franklin expedition, and, and he was the commander, but what is probably not always appreciated is that John Franklin, the leader, two things. Really. One, he was pretty much unsuited to the role. He was nearly 60 years of age. He was a, a rather fat man. He wasn't really um, a, a picture of health. And he died quite early in the expedition. And Crozier was the deputy. And so he took over. And what then became this um, tragedy, the, the, the greatest tragedy in the history of all polar exploration. I mean, if you put it in very simple terms, you have 129 men, two very well stocked British Navy ships, and they just disappeared in the ice and were never seen again. So this is a colossal um, uh, loss. And we do know from bits and pieces of information we've been able to piece together over the years that it was Crozier and not John Franklin who led the attempts to break out of the ice and to march across the ice um, in the hope of finding rescue. And it, it's, it is said, and with, we can't be for, for sure because clearly we weren't there, but Crozier was certainly one of the last men to die, but all 129 of them perished. And was this the greatest disaster in polar history? Yes, I think it was. Um, it was the greatest disaster, not of, of Crozier's making, I might add. Uh, one has to put this into context. Um, you know, the, the mid-19th uh, century, this is Britain at its absolute peak of powers. It's acquiring vast territories across the world. There is nothing the world can teach the British at this point. They are economically, militarily, and politically the strongest power on earth. What they didn't do was listen to simple people like the Inuit, um, who could tell them how to survive in the ice. And so they went up to the ice, really, rather naively in many ways, unbelievably brave. Make no mistake, these were very, very courageous men. But they were somewhat naive. I mean, they took as I said, 129 men and two ships. They even took servants with them. They ate off fine bone china and they had their cutlery they ate their meals with had their initials carved in it. But they didn't take enough food and they effectively died of starvation and scurvy and a, and a variety of other uh, issues relating to exposure to these appalling climates. Um, 
So they, they kind of blundered. They took home from home, if you like, and they rather blundered into it, of, of which Crozier was, was part. But he led this very, very brave attempt to break out, and he had with him about 100 men on, on what was a death march. And we know from the Inuit accounts, um, which is, of course, at that time, there were no, no books above the tree line. So the Inuit relied entirely on oral history, which is remarkably accurate. And they were able to fill in a few of the missing details for us. So we do know that, for example, Crozier was alive some years into the expedition. But they were probably... Um, we don't know for sure, but they probably lived for three or four years in this vast wilderness. And for context, for people who are not quite sure I use the word vast, it's bigger than the entire landmass of Western Europe. So from sort of Russia uh, westwards. And you have there's nobody else there apart from a few Inuits dotted around this vast landscape. And, of course, they, they didn't even know how to hunt properly. They didn't take proper guns with them for hunting. Um, and so they all perished over what we think is probably a three- or four-year period. We don't know because there's, there's only one written record of the expedition's demise, and that's written by Francis Crozier. And he left it in a tin, in a can, a canister, in a, in a can well above the Arctic Circle. And that was found... Some years later, strangely enough, by an Irishman called Leopold McClintock from uh, Dundalk. And McClintock found the note, and in it, there's the, the key words, just nine words, told everybody what they needed to know, that Franklin was dead and that Crozier had set out to try and break free from the ice. Okay, well, Michael, it's a very powerful story and you tell it so well in the book Icebound in the Arctic, the mystery of Captain Francis Crozier and the Franklin Expedition, a new edition published in paperback by the O'Brien Press. The author, Michael Smith. And Michael, thanks so much for joining us tonight. It's been a pleasure. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History, history on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. The Bible, we are constantly reminded, is the best-selling book of all time. But how well do we really know it? A new book reveals that the Bible many of us think we know is a pale imitation of the real thing. That in reality, the Bible is full of surprises, contradictions, unexplained impossibilities, intriguing supernatural creatures, as well as heroes doing horrible deeds. The book is called A Most Peculiar Book, The Inherent Strangeness of the Bible. It's published in hardback by Oxford University Press. The author is Kristen Swenson. And Kristen, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Thanks, Patrick. And uh, this book, it's, it's not coming from a hostile place. It's actually coming from someone who has a lot of affection for the Bible. I think you mentioned that you love the Bible and that you're actually just exploring some of these inconsistencies, the problems, the contradictions, as well as the fact that perhaps the Bible is, is, is used by people who say, well, it's in the Bible, when actually it's a lot more complicated than that. That's right. Yeah, I am um, fortunate to have had the opportunity to study the Bible at um, the highest level. So PhD in the history and literature of ancient Israel is the um, title of my program read. And so I've been 
studying the Bible not just as, uh, not simply as a person of faith, though I come from a Christian background, Protestant Christian actually, in northern Minnesota in the United States here, and um, I went to a Lutheran college. It was there that I began to learn a little bit more about the Bible. So I had, of course, been hearing it in church and reading it in youth groups and things like that. But it was when I was introduced to um, a little bit of wordplay in Hebrew that I got hooked. That is, I didn't even appreciate, of course, as a lot of us don't, that the Bible comes to us in translation. If we're reading it in English, we're reading it in translation. The um, Christian Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and uh, so we, we often call that the Hebrew Bible. It is um, biblical to Jews. In the very beginning of that um, collection, we read of this wonderful word play, the human being created in the Adam and Eve or Garden of Eden story is Adam, created out of Adamah, which is a Hebrew word that means ground or soil or earth. And so we get this story of like Adam with a capital A, a guy created out of dirt. But in the Hebrew, what we have is a generic human being, that word Adam, Hebrew doesn't have capital or lowercase letters. Adam means simply a generic human being, though it can also be a specifically gender um, man. But this is Adam, human being created out of Adama, the earth, the ground, the soil, it's human out of humus. And I have such a um, passion for environmental issues. I was hooked right away. I thought, oh my goodness, here is this association between human beings and our non-human natural world intimately associated within this authoritative text for, you know, millions of people around the world. Um, Adam, out of Adama, I wondered what more might there be in this text that I don't see reading it only in, in English. So I learned biblical Hebrew, of course, and then I kept going, you know, learning what I did through a master's program and then a PhD and an earning tenure as a professor here at a university in um, the United States, continuing to study and teach about the Bible. Uh, so yeah, it's it's a um, a book for which, as you know, I I have a great deal of affection. I have a great deal of respect for. My respect has grown in um, sort of. People think if we acknowledge the oddities in the Bible, we are inclined to dismiss the Bible as erroneous or otherwise nonsensical. But I have come to appreciate that those oddities, the peculiarities, those disconnects and actually disagreements, blatant disagreements within the Bible, may be leading us to a relationship different than we have been accustomed to using the Bible, inviting us into conversation with it, rather than treating it as a dictatorial authoritarian um, document. So let's talk about some of those oddities and blatant disagreements. How much do you think it's down to problems with the translations? How much of it is down to the fact that as you as you as you show, you know, it's many different books with many different authors? And how much is that there just is a certain element of of oddity in it because there are some strange supernatural things you have, certain things that just are a little peculiar. That is all of the above and more. So the Bible we know comes to us um, from ancient times and places very unlike our own. So some of the oddities are a function of our dissimilarity. We we just have a very um, a different kind of world we inhabit. We are we have different social systems than those reflected 
within some of the text. So, that, so some of it, some of those oddities are, as they strike us as oddities, are are a product of the fact that this is an ancient text reflecting very different circumstances and time and place. But um, there are also oddities and disconnects that are exactly, as you say, a function of the um, development of this book over a long period of time coming from itself different times and places. We know this as scholars. It's quite easy to see once you start looking uh, that we have um, different sources that are woven together within this text that we have as a, as a single unit. Now it comes to us. So some of those are a product of different authorship, if you will. Um, but authorship is also kind of an anachronistic way of thinking about biblical texts that emerged over, again, a long period of time. Uh, we also, as we know, have very different kinds of literature. If we just treat the Bible as literature um, and set the, set the um, faith piece aside for a moment, we can see that there are different types of literatures within the Bible. We have stories, we have poems. We have kind of legal-sounding material. We have biographies. So we have different kinds of literatures within it that ask of us as readers uh, different kinds of eyes and ears. Um, so there are those things. It's um, Yeah, so there are a number of different reasons that... And then, of course, as you know, translation is itself an act of interpretation. It's um, the, the best, well-meaning, most in um, most qualified translators have to make choices as they work from the original language into what we call the target language. And as English readers, we are, our target language would be English. They have to make choices along the way. And um, so some of those translations will vary one from another. I often advise people who ask what's the best translation to lay out as many different translations as they can get in front of them and then see the ways in which they differ, because that often will reveal the possibilities that the original languages afford, but we can't um, reflect in a one-to-one -one, uh, translation. You have an entire section entitled, But the Bible Says. Does it annoy you when people say, but the Bible says that's a sin, that's not allowed, God hates that, you know, uh, that's abhorrent behaviour. Is that a problem for you because you know the Bible actually says many different things and perhaps it may not be saying what you're claiming it's saying. That, yes, Patrick, is the truth. Yes, that does bother me. Um, one of the things that I find that a lot of my life's work is, is about is asking people to stop beating each other up with this text. Because, um, of course, people seem inclined to say what God says in a corrective way directed to someone else, rarely about ourselves, right? <laughs> like they are wrong because the Bible says here this, that, or the other. I think literalism is a bit of a red herring when people say, well, I'm just reading it literally. I'm taking it at its word. It's deeply problematic. For one thing, such people are seldom reading it in the original languages. So again, they're already reading a translation that is itself an interpretation. And um, yes, there are so many problems with the, this effort to immediately apply whatever we happen to to encounter in the Bible to our lives today for all sorts of different kinds of reasons. And that brings me back to this matter of inviting people to think about the Bible in a little bit different way. That is, as an opportunity to be in conversation with, if, if you're a person of faith, to be in conversation with a living God who may still be speaking and may, um, and may still be listening to our side of the conversation. So we have, we run across the book of Joshua, 
which is basically founded on the principle of genocide. And um, we know, (laughs) I hope we appreciate that genocide is a very problematic way to deal with other peoples. (laughs) And um, so we, I think God, in my, and I maintain a a strong faith, it's changed a lot as I've learned about the, learned about the Bible and more at any rate is, um, doesn't uh, my, in, I think God would love for us to say, I don't agree with that. There's got to be a better way than just killing off everyone that is other than myself. Um, so I, I think the Bible, with all of this disconnect, these um, oddities, peculiarities, is an invitation for us to be talking back to it sometimes, even to say, I, I can't go there. That's not right. Okay, well, it's a wonderfully thought-provoking book. It's called A Most Peculiar Book, The Inherent Strangeness of the Bible, published in hardback by Oxford University Press. The author, uh, Kristen Swenson. Uh, And Kristen, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you, Patrick. It's been a pleasure. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. A new book provides you with everything you need to know and appreciate and understand Aztec hieroglyphs. And it also takes you on a tour through Aztec history as recorded in these hieroglyphics. The book is called Deciphering Aztec Hieroglyphs, a guide to Nahuatl writing. It's published in hardback by Thames and Hudson. The author is Gordon Whitaker. And Gordon, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Patrick. Nice to meet you. It's very interesting that for many years, for many centuries, people thought the Aztecs didn't have a writing system. And I wonder, was that Western prejudice when it came to a belief in the superiority of of Western culture and and, and values? I think it probably is. I think it's a mix of things. Uh, Is lack of familiarity with uh, how different uh, Native American civilizations and cultures are. Uh, And on the other hand, the the fact that we tend to be more interested in the Maya uh, because we have more more information, at least more depth uh, there. And the other thing that the writing system looks more playful. It looks it just doesn't look like a sophisticated writing system. So, so I think pulled a lot of, uh, of of scholars in the past. Very good. And talk to me about these hieroglyphics. Describe them to our, our, our listeners, because it seems to have some similarities with uh, uh, writings and, and, and uh, hieroglyphs from other cultures around the world. It's probably most in appearance to Egyptian hieroglyphics, because we're all familiar with the, the, the beautiful naturalistic forms of, of uh, Egyptian hieroglyphs. And, and even without any having the system, we, we tend to think that we can understand something of it simply because we recognize a duck and think it's standing for a duck and, and, so, uh, and, and fail to recognize that a lot of these signs that look like objects and, and animals we recognize are actually being used for the sound that relates to the word for that particular uh, thing. But it's just being used phonetically for the sound alone. So this this makes us feel closer to Egyptian writing, and, and Aztec writing goes one step further because it's extremely colourful. Um, usually, an Aztec hieroglyph is painted. Now, Egyptian hieroglyphs can be painted, but the difference is that it doesn't affect the the reading of the text. But in the Aztec system, colour 
differentiate one sign from another, even if they look identical. The color has a semantic content. So, uh, and and if you were talking about a red mountain, the the, the, the hieroglyph for mountain would be painted red which in the Egyptian system wouldn't have been the case. It's interesting to compare and contrast it with the Mayan system because it seems to be, from the way you describe it in the book, to be more flexible and maybe perhaps more useful yes. than that. Yes. The difference between Aztec and Maya writing is partly the fact, even though they're related uh, cultures, they, they're in the same region, uh, they, they are, as say, Egyptian and Mesopotamian cultures were, which were also not so far away from each other. And um, the Maya writing is on the surface quite different in that it's more abstract in the in the forms. That is, we look at a hieroglyph and we don't recognize anything that, anything in particular. And also it's black and white. It's not in, it's, uh, not in color. Whereas in the stick system, you do recognize the individual items in, in many cases, but it, the color is, is, is important. So so those are the, the contrastive things. Now, as far as the features are concerned, as opposed to just the outward appearance, the the Aztec system, when it's writing, for example, foreign words and names, like Spanish names after the conquest, well, they will, they will write syllable by syllable, the same way the Japanese do with with uh, English words and names. And um, the, the dip in the Maya system, you have only one, strategy. You can only write a vowel sign or, or a sign for a constant and a vowel. So ba, be, bi, bo, and so on. You can't do bak, bam, uh, but, and so on. The Aztec system is much more similar to the system the Sumerians and the Assyrians and Babylonians developed in that you can have quite different types of syllables and even, even two syllables represented by the same Sign. So the flexibility of the phonetic system in Aztec writing is so great that they could they could represent Spanish names that were entirely new to them. It's interesting when you look at uh, maybe links between these parts of an ancient culture with uh, with modern things that it's interesting to make a comparison with maybe even how modern advertising works and uh, the way the Aztecs did their writing. Well, here's, here's an, an example that we wouldn't really, wouldn't normally think about, but in recent years, uh, on, on writing systems and, uh, and uh, related methods uh, have tended to uh, be more interesting. When you look at advertising, we see for example, look at a, at a poster for a Dracula film. You don't see, you may, may not see more than just the name Dracula in the picture of, of the, the individual. But the font used will not be a flowery font. It will not be a, it, it, it will be, it will often be colored red. The, the letters representing each of the, uh, uh, the letters in the name will be dripping blood. This, this is a frequent thing. You're not actually reading the blood and you're not reading the red, but you know at the, at the word Dracula that it's associated with blood. And the Aztec system has the same kind of, of playfulness so that you see on the one hand a word for a particular place, person, or thing, uh, but it can be influenced in the way it's represented uh, by adding a feature that relates to the 
the meaning or the context. Very good. And there is something playful and mischievous almost about Aztec writing. Yes. Uh, for example, there is a, a little town, well, there was a little town just south of Mexico City. Right now it's the suburb of Mexico City. And this little town was called Little Mexico because Mexico, the country, is named after the city called Mexico. It's, it's uh, that way around. Um, whereas, in, whereas in Guatemala, the, the, um, the city is named after the country. So um, in the case of Mexico, the, the little town called Mexicatzinco means little Mexico. But sin, the suffix sin or cinco for little, is similar to the sin meaning backside of a human being. So the hieroglyph for, for the, the suffix meaning little is the lower half of a male body. And uh, the the funny thing in this case, the first part of the name Mexica sounds like the 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 the, uh, the Aztec term for Aztec for for a, an Aztec, which is Mexica. So this is represented by the top half of an uh, of an Aztec. So you see you see the upper torso and head with with uh, eagle feathers. And you know that that's to be read Mexica, but it's attached to the bottom half of the person, which reads Cinco. So, in fact, it's a phonetic representation, but it looks like an actual depiction of, of a uh, squatting Aztec. And, and one of the ways of representing it is to have him have this individual defecating a, an agave plant. Now that's a rather curious uh, way of representing a town's name, but it's because the word for defecate begins with the syllable she, which is the second syllable in the name Mexica Cinco, and the maguey plant, the agave plant, uh, is, is read me as the first symbol in the name. So you see this sporting individual excreting a plant which is a kind of rather ludicrous uh, thing, but it's a, it's a sign of scribal ingenuity and politeness. Very good. Well, Gordon, thanks so much for coming on the show tonight and uh, bringing to life uh, the Aztec hieroglyphs. The book is called Deciphering Aztec Hieroglyphs. It's published in hardback by Thames and Hudson. The author, Gordon Whitaker. And Gordon, thanks so much. Thank you very much, Patrick. We'll be back with yeah. more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Cricket was the first sport played in almost every country of the Americas, earlier than football, rugby or baseball. And a new book explores the history of Latin America through cricket. And we find out, for example, that the notorious Pablo Escobar even had a shadowy connection to the game and that the fate of cricket in South America was symbolised by Eva Peron ordering the burning down of the Buenos Aires Cricket Club Pavilion when the club refused to hand over their premises to her welfare scheme. The book is called A Vita Burned Down Our Pavilion, A Cricket Odyssey Through Latin America. It's published in hardback by Constable. The authors are Timothy Abraham and James Coyne. And James, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thanks a lot. Great to be here. It's a fascinating story, and I think it's a story that most people won't be expecting, this idea that cricket was so strong in these countries. Absolutely. Um, it, 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 you know, I think it was a surprise even to us when we first started looking into it. 
Um, but I think, you, you know, through history, actually, through much of the world, uh, you find that because cricket was sort of the game of the military, the game of uh, the well-to-do, it tended to sort of find its way to various places like that, really. And, it, you know, when it first made its way to South America, into Buenos Aires, and I think in 1806 uh, is the first trace of cricket in Buenos Aires, and that's the first in all of South America. It was actually through a sort of uh, a British army trying to trying to capture Buenos Aires and Montevideo, a rather ill-fated um, <laughs> mission, it must be said. Um, it didn't didn't last very long, but they did manage to play cricket while they were there. So um, I think that sh- that says a lot about the way cricket was sort of held up by um, by the military and by by wealthy uh, people at that time. And England and Australia played their first Test match uh, in 1877, but Uruguay and Argentina were already about ten years ahead of them. Yeah, that's extraordinary. Really, <laughs> it's an amazing story. Actually, there had been virtually non-stop uh, war, I think, in Uruguay or over Uruguay um, up to that point in 1868. Uh, and um, but a, a British ship, the HMS Bombay, did manage to make its way through um, uh, to play both of those uh, both of those countries in 1864. Um, and terribly, actually, uh, the ship uh, burned in the in the Rio de la Plata, and lots of people lost their life. Um, there was a fire on on board, and they couldn't get it out in time. Um, so, but in 1868, uh, yeah, that's right. Buenos Aires Cricket Club and the Montevideo Cricket Club uh, played each other. Um, from 1868 onwards and that was sort of the start of that Argentine-Uruguay rivalry um, and so yeah that, that was even before before football had really taken off in that part of the world so extraordinary as you say And there are some strong Irish connections as well including uh, some who were fighting uh, uh, in some of the, the wars and battles helping to, uh, to, to, to spread the popularity of cricket Yeah I mean <laughs> it's incredible isn't it um, you know there were various people that had, I think had been on the edge of the Napoleonic Wars uh, various people who'd sort of chances had gone out to to help Simon Bolivar um, uh, liberate much of South America, much of those many of those countries, uh, and so various Irish people found themselves going out to to aid those struggles. Um, and yeah, you find that almost in every country. And and funnily enough, um, the first English language newspaper in in uh, in Argentina, the Standard, which pretty much helped us write this book because there were so many um, so many articles on cricket. From that period, that was started by two Dubliners, um, Michael and Edward Mulhall, and they were they were farmers in Argentina. But they they decided to start the first English language newspaper in, in in Buenos Aires, and that lasted pretty much through until the period when Evita um, got her her minions to burn down the pavilion. So that was an, you know purely from our side, that was an amazing source in terms of finding the material for all the cricket that had gone on in, in Argentina in particular. And the quality of the cricket was very high as well because you show how uh, star-studded teams from England went over uh, to South America in, say, the 1930s and and suffered humiliation at the hands of Argentina. That's right. Uh, not just in Argentina as well, actually. There were, there were Jamaican teams that went to Panama and Costa Rica because of the, uh, because of the, 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 the Jamaicans and West Indians that were working there. But, yeah... Um, so yeah, I mean there, there were Plum Warner, the famous um, sort of uh, major figure in English cricket in the 1920s. He who famously managed the Bodyline Tour in 32-33, not particularly, again, a rather ill-fated mission. Uh, he took an MCC side to South America in 26-27, and they lost. They lost the game uh, to Argentina, and he was so irked that they managed to lose that he managed to sneak in an extra Test match, or they call them Test matches, but they're not known as officially Test matches now. But he managed to sneak in an extra game against Argentina just because they lost, which is a bit naughty. 
Um, so yeah, the, the Argentina landed blows on, on on MCC sides, on other private first-class tours that had gone. They were good enough to do that. Um, there was an awful lot of cricket in in Argentina, in particular. You know, there were railway teams, there were clubs, there were all sorts. Um, an extraordinary sort of level of cricket at the time. Uh, you know, I think uh, they they were probably at, at minor county or or probably even some of the weaker first-class counties would have struggled against Argentina at that time in the 20s and 30s. And tell us about the connection with Pablo Escobar and cricket. Oh goodness me! Yeah, that's um, yeah. So he was he was involved with um with, with a with a rather uh, dodgy uh, a subsidiary of a bank in uh, in Bogota, and um and through that connection uh, he managed to uh, move some of his money. Uh, this is in the 1980s. Uh, but funnily enough, that bank actually had uh, their own cricket team who played against um played against various teams. I think they invited, even invited the Jamaica team at, at one point to, to Bogota. Um, so, yeah, there was a sort of a weird financial angle there. Um, uh, and, and, yeah, this bank called the BCCI, which is ironic given that that's the, uh, that's the, uh, that's the name of the Indian cricket ball, completely unrelated, obviously, uh, to this. But um, funny little irony there. But, um, yeah, so they had their own cricket team, this bank that, that Escobar had links to. Um, so, yeah, extraordinary, that one. And Eva Peron gives you the title of the book, a wonderful title, and also gives you that very interesting story. Do we know what she really thought about the sport? Uh, was there any added pleasure in burning down the, the cricket club pavilion or was it just purely to do with uh, her feeling of frustration? Uh, I think it's, a, yeah, I mean, she, she liked football. Uh, you know, she, she, would, she would be seen um, doing the official kickoff at the start of big football games. Um, and I know that uh, you know there were various football events that went on on the same ground, uh, the cricket ground. Whether she liked cricket, uh, I don't know. I mean, obviously the, their big thing, the Perons, you know, Juan Peron, the president, and obviously his wife, they were trying to rid Argentina of this foreign capitalist dominance. And to be honest with you, a lot of the cricketers uh, in Argentina at the time were involved with various insurance companies, farming, railways uh, that were British-owned or British-operated. Um, so uh, and they were very well connected to the Buenos Aires Cricket Club. So I don't know. You know, I, I suspect there was a bit of animus there between her and and, and those people. Um, but yeah, it's um, yeah, I, I, whether she liked cricket or not, there's no record. We we tr- we obviously scoured through the archives to try and find some um, <laughs> uh, re- reference to her having been at a game or something. We couldn't find any, but she certainly um, wasn't too happy about the presence of um, of that club and their and their unwillingness to hand over their grounds for her welfare scheme. So um, it didn't go down too well with the Brits, who'd been there since you know the 1860s and didn't fancy their ground trampled over by Peronists, really. Um, so, yeah, there was a bit of a clash of, a clash of cultures there, I think. Very good. Well, it's a wonderful story told so well by you and Timothy. The book is called Avita Burned Down Our Pavilion, a cricket odyssey through Latin America, published in hardback by Constable. The authors are Timothy Abraham and James Coyne. And James, thanks so much for joining us tonight. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. A new edition of Ireland's Pirate Trail takes us on a road trip around the entire coast of Ireland, uncovering an amazing history of swashbuckling bandits, both Irish-born and imported. The book is called Ireland's Pirate Trail, A Quest to Uncover Our Swashbuckling Past. It's published in paperback by the O'Brien Press, and I'm delighted to welcome the author Des Eakin to the show tonight. Des, you're very welcome back. Good evening. Thanks for having me on. Can we begin with the story of the man who was described as the most wanted man in the world at the time, uh, Henry Avery, and how he ended up yep. in Ireland. 
Yes, this is an absolutely fascinating story. Um, a few weeks ago in the papers, there was a, a story which excited my interest. It was about a local historian named Jim Bailey, who was using a metal detector in a fruit orchard in Rhode Island when he found something that got him really excited, which was an exotic Middle Eastern coin that turned out to have been minted in Yemen in 1693. Now, why was that so interesting? Because it shouldn't have been there at all. There was no evidence of any trade between the Americas and uh, the Middle East at that stage. And since then, about 15 similar coins have been found in New England. And uh, the overwhelming likelihood was that this was part of the missing treasure from uh, a multi-million pound heist uh, by pirates in the Arabian Sea two years after that coin was minted in 1695. The heist was carried out on an Indian pilgrim ship by an English pirate named Henry Avery, as you've just said. Uh, who became at the centre of the world's most truly global manhunt. The King of England offered a huge reward for his arrest, and an APB was put out on four continents for him. But from my point of view, uh, writing uh, for, for, for an Irish audience, the interesting thing was uh, the fact that Avery himself, uh, although some of his crew went to Rhode Island, uh, he sailed to Ireland and disappeared shortly after that. Uh, he brought his share of the treasure ashore up of all places, uh, sleepy little Dunfanachy in North Donegal, where the only man standing in his way was a customs officer called Morris Cuttle. And the two men had a real battle of wits uh, to stop Avery getting away, but he ended up getting away after all. Yeah, I'd love to know a little bit about Henry Averill because it is, it is that extraordinary story. It is. He was a man, he was born near Plymouth in Devon uh, in the 1650s, which would have made about 30 years old or so, mid-30s, when he carried out this super heist, which was one of the most lucrative heists ever made uh, on, on the sea. Um, he's already packed a lot into his life by that stage. He's been a Navy man and apparently an exemplary Navy man. Uh, he's been a slaver in West Africa and a licensed privateer. Then one day in 1694, he takes over a British ship in La Coruña in Spain and he converts it to a pirate vessel. He strips it down tunes it for speed, becomes really fast, changes its name from the Charles II to the Fancy, and he heads off to East Africa, where he causes a bit of mayhem, burning towns and uh, looting, before he sets his sight on this, the biggest heist of all. Um, it was well known at this stage uh, among pirates that every year a fleet from Surat in India uh, took hundreds of pilgrims to Mecca and then returned to India laden down with treasure. And the biggest ship of all uh, was called the Gunji Shui, which I believe translates as exceeding treasure. And it does exactly what it says in the tin. It's carrying 120,000 pounds worth of gold in those days, gold, silver and jewellery, but it's well protected by 80 cannon and 400 crack musketeers. So any attempt to attack it would seem like suicide. But that didn't deter Avery. He organised all the pirates in the area into a fleet of six ships, and he went in ambush in the Arabian Sea for the fleet to emerge. They got off to a bad start. This is September 19, uh, 1695 we're talking about. They got off to a bad start because they missed the entire fleet that sails right past them. But eventually they catch up and seize a smaller treasure ship called the Bath Muhammad before zoning in on the Gunjus Way. And by this stage, the pirates are down to about three ships. They've lost a few. Um, and they're outnumbered by about three to one by the musketeers on board the Gunjus Way. But Avery presses ahead, and he's rewarded with the most amazing good luck, because with one shot, he brings down 
these treasure ships mainmast, which brings down the canvas on top of all the uh, people on board and also robs them of any forward momentum and maneuverability. And the uh, next thing that happens is uh, one of the uh, ship's cannons explodes, explodes on deck, killing several of the Gunjusway's own men. So in the middle of this chaos, the pirates leap aboard and they take over the ship after about three hours of fierce fighting. Now, they've got themselves now in control of a, a treasure way beyond their wildest dreams. They're set up for life. They reckon the treasure all in all is worth about £25 million pounds in today's money. And once it's divvied out, every man gets a thousand pounds, more than they could hope to earn in their lifetime. So they're set up for life, um, which works at about 130,000 ahead today. Now, they could easily have left it at that, but that makes what happens next extraordinarily heinous and inexcusable. Because Avery and his men go to a quiet coastline and for the next week, uh, they subject the passengers, there were 600 passengers, including women and children, to an ordeal of torture and rape. And um, it causes, this causes so much outrage in India that the uh, Mughal emperor, Aurangzeb, comes within an inch of chucking the English East India Company out of India altogether, which, as you know, altered the whole course of uh, history on the subcontinent. And he's only mollified when the English int uh, introduced what was probably the first international warrant against Henry Avery and his men. It was offering £500 per bounty, and it was declaring him not only an enemy of England and of India, but an enemy of the human race, and it absolved anybody anywhere in the world from any liability for what they would do to try to capture him. So this was quite a, uh, it's been described as the first truly global uh, manhunt. So Des, what about Cronia Whale? Because there's a lot of myths about her and about uh, her and the legends of the pirate queen of Mayo. What's true and what's legend? Well, there's a lot of uh, fanciful stories about uh, Grace O'Malley. Well, w one of the uh, most common ones is that she was a queen, literally a, a, a queen in Ireland or a princess of some, of some type. But she wasn't. Uh, uh, she was a very successful woman, a uh, very remarkable woman, but she was never any form of royalty, even in an era when there was about 60 kings and monarchs in Ireland at that stage. So there's no truth in the rumour that she met uh, Queen Elizabeth as an equal queen. Um, she did arrive in London um, in the 1690s, uh, but she was uh, never um, she was never treated as anything like a, a, a monarch, and I don't think she was ever likely to have met the Queen face to face. I think you've done in your own programme the myth about uh, I dismiss the uh, the idea that she divorced her first husband and took his castle after one year of sort of test drive marriage. Uh, that turns out not to be true either. Uh, she was never divorced from her husband. Uh, there's other uh, myths, for example, the haircut myth, the famous haircut myth, where she was supposedly uh, cut her hair off uh, to be with the, to, to look like the men on board the ship in order to uh, become one of them. And from that, she got the nickname of Bald Grace, Grown Your Whale. That turns out not to be true either because uh, the derivation of that name is completely different. It just means Grania from O'Malley territory. Um, there's several others. Um, it's the Hoth kidnap, for instance, um, where she was supposedly uh, went to Hoth and got annoyed because she was turned away from Hoth Castle. And as, as a result, um, she kidnapped uh, the child of the Earl of Hoth and refused to let him return unless uh, the door was always open, left open for visitors. And it turns out 
a bit disappointingly that the same story was told about someone else about 100 years beforehand. Uh, so it, it, it looks as if that story was just transferred to the more famous Granuel over the years in much the same way as, you know, all good stories or all good quotes are attributed to Oscar Wilde in the end. And I suppose we have this romanticised image of pirates from uh, from movies and from books, but actually as, as your work shows and as anyone who's delved into it, and as you were talking there about Henry Avery, it's a lot of horror as well. It's a lot of nastiness and brutish uh, behaviour and violence and... Uh, uh, mm. It's very far from the romance of the legends. Absolutely, um, that the the old sort of Hollywood idea of the of the pirate as being a sort of gentleman, uh, full of courtesy to women, wasn't actually true because they were they, they ranged from uh, outright thugs, just exactly as we have today, gangsters, uh, to people who were really trying to make a living because there was no social welfare in those days. So it was a spectrum. But we had horrendous stories of uh, of women being uh, taken on board ship and subjected to rape, um, and sexual assault, um, and there was obviously torture meted out to uh, to men and women to try and get them to disclose where their where, where their uh, riches were. So it was um, it really was a British time, and uh, I certainly wouldn't have wanted to be captured by a pirate in that era. Okay, well, Des, thanks so much for joining us tonight. The book is called Ireland's Pirate Trail, a quest to uncover our swashbuckling past. Well, that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to everyone who put tonight's show together, Susan Cattle, my producer, and Peter Malloy on sound. Next week, we're heading to Belfast for our first outside broadcast since the start of the pandemic. And we'll be broadcasting live from the Harrison Chambers of Distinction, a bohemian boutique hotel in Belfast. And we'll be debating the events of one hundred years ago with the creation of Northern Ireland and partition with a great lineup of guests. So join us next Sunday on News Talk. We've been talking history. Good night. Talking history. This, this is News Talk.